0: To everyday Theology, where we don't tell you what to believe or why to believe it, but rather explore our Christian beliefs and why they matter for us in relation to God, to creation, and to others. My name is Aaron Ross. Welcome back to Everyday Theology. I again have the pleasure of uh, another, I like to say, new friend, uh, because every time I get to have a conversation with someone on the podcast who I didn't know before, but now we've had this conversation or we've had a lead up to the conversation, I always just enjoy kind of these people that I get to meet and and engage with. And this time around, it's Dr. Steven Studebaker. Uh, So how would you like me to refer to you? Some people like certain things. And if you like Dr. Studebaker, I'm all there. Uh
1: no, Steve is fine.
0: Well, Steve, thank you so much for being with me. I appreciate you taking the time out of your day to have a conversation.
1: Yeah, well, thanks for inviting me. I'm I'm uh, looking forward to it. Uh for the
0: for my listeners here, uh, Steve is a professor of systematic and historical theology and holds the Howard and Shirley Bintel chair in evangelical thought at McMaster Divinity College. Uh again, meaning he's much smarter than I, so he can say a lot a lot of things much better than I ever could formulate or think. We'll see.
1: We'll wait till the end of the podcast, hold judgment.
0: (laughs) I I have no problem saying up front, that's true. Uh, But Steve, if you wouldn't mind for our listeners, please let them know a little bit about you. Anything kind of in your theological journey, anything that you would like to just share with our listeners?
1: Yeah. So I I became a Christian when I was 19. I'd been out of high school for a year. I lived a rather uh, tumultuous uh, teenage years. Uh, back in the 80s, and my my uh, conversion was a you know kind of a dramatic, typical um, Pentecostal evangelical <laughs> sort of conversion experience. It was at a men's Bible study on a Monday night, and because they were Pentecostals, they first had me say the sinner's prayer, and then immediately <laughs> 15 minutes later, they said, "Oh, you need to receive baptism in the Spirit." I'm like, okay, I'll take it. Um, I think I need all I can get, and so they circled around me, laid hands on me, and I and I had sort of a classic evangelical conversion experience and then uh sort of pentecostal uh, spirit baptism experience although if you read uh some of my my work that i've done over the years you would see that it, i critically evaluate some of those mm. assum- the theological assumptions not the experience right we experience god in a, in a variety of ways and there's right. uh i think that that's 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 good right that god is not limited by a set of um theological categories that we have sitting on the shelf but works you know he's an equal opportunist uh, works, right. with, works, with, works with what he has um and so um yeah so i don't discount or besmirch that that experience in any way because it was real but i think the theology we can think about it theologically and and how how to how best to articulate it so yeah after that i went to northwest university um now northwest university in kirkland washington it was an ag school well, still is. Mm-hmm. And I, I, the, the Bible study that I became a Christian was was sponsored by Force Grove Assembly of God in Oregon. And uh, yeah, I went to Northwest, did a youth ministry degree there. It was involved with youth ministry while I was in college, I was a youth pastor, associate pastor for a year out of college in Woodenville, Washington. And then uh, Sheila and I, who's my wife, went to um, Northern Minnesota, a place called the Iron Range, Virginia, huh. Minnesota. And uh, it's a my, uh, small mining community. Yeah yeah, I was youth associate pastor there for about just under three years, but I just couldn't get away from my interest in theology, and uh, when I was in college, I thought it was just a, you know, a college infatuation, right? I, I was called to ministry, and <laughs> right. so that's what I should, I should stick to it, right. and not be, you know, sidetracked by this high and theological stuff, but I, I couldn't get a, get away from it, and so I ended up uh, we we left Minnesota. We moved to Chicago. I did my um, master's degree at uh, Trinity, and then PhD at Marquette. And uh, along the way, we had two kids, Max and Gabby, who are now uh, nineteen and twenty twenty one. And um, and it taught uh, after I graduated from Marquette. I taught for three years, uh, undergraduate school in uh, northern Ge- northeast Georgia. It's a manual college. It was um, it's affiliated with the Pentecostal Holiness church. But, uh, mm-hmm. The student body is very sort of um, pan-evangelical, pan-Pentecostal, a lot of different yeah. folks, you know, and the faculty is like that too. And then I've been at McMaster since uh, 2006. And at McMaster, I teach um, uh, theology courses, really to do Trinity, um, pneumatology. The, I really I really enjoy my theology, occult, theology and culture class, uh, I do a theology and leadership class, um, Protestant theology, variety of different theology. And I, I also have the opportunity to um be the advisor for masters, um, master of arts. We our, our program has basically MDiv MTS, um, Doctor of Practical Theology, and MA PhD. Hmm. And so the 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 um the more um direct mentoring. Uh, roles are with the uh, doctor of practical theology and the MA and the PhD right. student. Yeah. Right. So, and uh, aside from that, I like fly fishing, especially when it oh. involves large fish and lots of them. Yeah. But, uh, and I've done that in Alaska a couple of times, British Columbia, and uh, yeah, all, all over the United States. I
0: have to come to Ohio where we have trout fishing, but they're not large. <laughs> so, well, yeah. Aaron, in
1: the, Ohio has some of the, some of the best Great Lakes steelhead fishing.
0: I've heard. I haven't gotten a chance yet. You know, still newer <laughs> to the area, but I've been yeah. promised by a few people that are going to take me out, so it doesn't compare. I don't know how it'll compare to my Florida life of all saltwater fishing, so we'll see. Oh, yeah. You have to get used to it. Probably scale down the size a bit. <laughs> Just a bit. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love your, your research trajectory because there, there's so much akin to just kind of what, I, what I'm what i interested in. You know, I, I know you wrote a chapter on Pentecostals and Paul Tillich, which I work a lot with Tillich and thinking about Tillich. Um, and, of course, pneumatology and, and kind of the Trinity. And you wrote a, a book some time ago called um, Pentecost, the Triune God, mm. where mm-hmm. you make some kind of unique challenges to the way that we typically think about the Trinity in relation to the Spirit. And I just want, this is a very big open-ended question and probably too big of a question, but just to hear you explore that a little bit for the listeners, what was your concern in, or your questions in writing that text? And what were your kind of big takeaways from your research that kind of reframed the way that you even thought about the Trinity and the Spirit's role in the Trinity.
1: Yeah, so uh, my my interest, interest in the Trinity started at Marquette. It was interesting. that I went to Trinity Evangelical Divinity School and never took a class on the Trinity. And even <laughs> in my, my sequence of systematic theology classes, I think I took three of them. I think we spent about a half a day, you know, a half a lecture, so an hour to... Right. On the, you know, on the on the doctrine of the Trinity. So it wasn't until I went to study with those Jesuits at Marquette <laughs> that uh, I got turned, that I was turned on to the Trinity, and especially um, Father David Coffey. Hmm. Uh, and a, my first semester at Marquette, I uh, took a course with him and, and sort of learned, uh, started learning about the Trinity and, and his approach. And he was uh, sort of modified, was uh, Rahner's theology of the Trinity mm-hmm. in, in, in light of the traditional Augustinian mutual love model. And, and so I initially at that period, I was, in fact, I wrote a book on um, Jonathan. My dissertation was on Jonathan Edwards and the Trinity. Edwards, I, I um, argue, is, uh, uses a sort of a social amplification of the Augustinian mutual love tradition. And and then I wrote a book, uh, second book was um, Jonathan Edwards in Conversation with David Coffey, because they had very similar, it's amazing, it's sort of contemporary Catholic uh, hmm. theologian from Australia, and this um, 18th century, um, essentially a Puritan theologian had this remarkable yeah. similarity, not only in their thinking on the Trinity, but the way it then influenced how they understood the Holy Spirit's role in grace or or more more pointedly the holy spirit's role as grace hmm. that grace fundamentally is not forgiveness of sin is not going to heaven or or some other list of, of, of things benefits we often right. call the, the benefits of redemption uh, but rather the, the 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 benefit of redemption is is the gift of the holy spirit The the fundamental work that Christ came to do was to give the Holy Spirit, and through that gift of the Spirit, in a sense, now I'm adding in a little bit of my own um, theologizing here too, but essentially to offer the life that the Spirit brought about in Christ, to offer that to all people as the spirit of Pentecost, saving, of course, always that Christ is sui generis, right? That Christ is unique, one of a kind Yeah, in offering us the gift of the spirit and the life that he actualized in his historic life. We don't become sons, you know, we don't become the son of God, right? He was right. the, right. But, but the parallel, he was the son of God. We become the children of God through that gift of the spirit. Um, now, in terms of the from you now Pentecost to the Triune God represents sort of an evolution from that. At the first at the stage at those at that stage when I did my dissertation on Edwards and I wrote the book um, bringing Edwards into conversation with coffee, I was operating within the categories of the mutual love model, but something always bugged me about it, or I could could not resolve, and and that is that the Spirit no matter how much you emphasize the the sociality that's intrinsic to the mutual love between the father and son it still renders the spirit passive right and without personal agency
0: w- would you mind for the listeners to kind of who may not know that mutual love model just kind of give a brief quick before moving on what that model is from augustine
1: yeah yeah so essentially the basic idea is that the father and son um from eternity. So if for the, I don't want to go get too much in the weeds. It, <laughs> no, right. Like the, 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 the sun, cause the, the, there's a, there's a sequence, right? The, there, uh, the, it's not a temporal sequence. It's a, but an ontological one. So each divine person is, is eternal and always existed. But the basic idea is that the, 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 the son proceeds is essentially the um, repetition in, in the, the, what's called the idea of the father, right? The mm. father can of himself um and the son is the exact representation of the father other than that he's the son um and then since the son um entails everything that the father does when they sort of gaze upon or look upon each other they they are um they they love one another right Right. there's intrinsic um love that is shared between them. And because it is a, an act of the divine being, it, it, it actually subsists in the person of the Holy Spirit. Hmm. And, and part of this involves the, um, the patristic, some people would probably call it neoplatonic notion of the um, nature of a spiritual being, that it has two basic um, operations. One is the uh, operation of the intellect or knowledge. One is the operation of the will, which the highest expression of is love. And so hmm. um, the divine being, being a spiritual being, when it operates according to knowledge, it subsists in um, the sun or the idea right. of the father. And when it subsists, the other operation of the will, it subsists as mutual love of those two. So it's a little strange um, if you're not used to these kind of patristic and early Trinitarian categories, it sounds like you're, you know, it's, it's just, it, it, it sounds rather bizarre. It makes <laughs> sense once you kind of dial into the logic right. of what they're about and talking about, but essentially the father and son from eternity, love each other and that act of love, that mutual love that they have for wanting have for one another subsists in the person of the Holy spirit. Now it gives, so in, in that conceptuality, the father has agency, the son has agency, right? That Because they, they're right. both acting to love. Um, but the Holy spirit is proceeding as pure act. and And so it's hard to understand how that spirit has any sort of personal sort of agency and so I started I could never kind of get 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 that remained a burr burr in my side so to speak or in my saddle and um I, I I can't remember exactly what led me to to writing the from you know what was the the particular catalyst but um I started I started working on this book and I um my basic idea, what I wanted, one of the things I learned at Marquette, another, well, another thing I learned at Marquette from um, Dr. Uh, Delisle Dabney, who I was, I served as um PA, mm-hmm. and he was, uh, he taught a course on pneumatology. And one of the things he emphasized in the class was that what he would call um, sort of the story of the spirit or the narrative of the spirit, that rather than relying on philosophical assumptions about the spirit and this that and the other thing. We should allow the identity of the spirit to emerge from the narrative of Scripture. Yeah. In other words, the activities of the spirit, right? Right. And so, in in the Bible, there is intrinsic um, agency. The spirit has agency. The spirit's doing things. If you look at creation, the the ruach of God is hovering over the um, over the primal abyss in Genesis one, and it's the spirit that is the liminal. Um, agent where, where creation transitions from the primal abyss, the darkness, right to the days of creation, and so, and then similar sort of imagery at um, in with the flood, sort of creation 2.0. Um, the in the Old Testament prophets, it's often the spirit that is operative in the transition from tra- um, transforming the desert from a desert into a fertile field. Hmm. I'll pour out my spirit, you'll rebuild your cities. Um, i'll pour out my spirit it'll renew your heart um ezekiel 37 i believe it is where you have the um, valley of dry bones it's the spirit mm-hmm. that, that comes right and is the divine agent that catalyzes the the recreation of the people of israel in genesis 2 there it's dirt um and then this, the breath of god animates the dirt and so what i argue there is that these represent um, narrative agency of God's Spirit that's later clarified in the New Testament as the Holy Spirit, and and that needs to inform the way we think about the the, um, the eternal identity of, yeah. of the Spirit, right? because there's this part of Trinitarian theology, this assumption that there's a reciprocal, or at least a continuity between what's called the economic identity and activity of the divine persons and their economic. Identity and activity. Because if there weren't, now, economy means the work of God, the work of this Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit in creation, in the history of the imminent is how God has existed from eternity, which we do not have direct access to. Right. But if there is not correspondence between the two, in other words, if what we see the Son of God doing in Jesus Christ does not correspond to the Son's eternal identity, then we don't have any basis for to talk theology, right? Right, right. There's no basis. There's no revelation. There's no nothing. We're just just talking in the thin air. However, if there is a connection, then what we see the Spirit doing, the agency of the Spirit must map to some degree, however imperfectly we understand it, to the Spirit's eternal identity. And that made me start to think that the mutual love model that does not have agency cannot cannot be, um, is not adequate. You to to, to think-
0: put it in your own words, because I actually have this up, right? This is in my fourth chapter I'm still working on, but you say a person's activities are the concrete ways he or she manifests that theological reality, right? So to, to say it in a different way for our listeners, right? The work of, the, of Christ or the work of the Spirit portrays the character and nature of Christ and the Spirit, and therefore God.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. The, what we see in the, in there, when we're reading the Bible, which is a, a record of their economic activity reflects who and what they are from eternity.
0: Right. And so that, that is quite a bit different, right? Because you're, you're in so many ways, giving the spirit, you're, you're not giving, but you're describing the spirit as not just like what you said earlier as a passive thing within the Trinity, that is uh, without much direct influence in life, maybe, right? Mm-hmm. Because it's either Christ influencing or it's God influencing and it's this mutual love of the spirit that may be enacting it, but the spirit's really just doing a bidding, right? And how is that different then when we talk about Christ saying something like, The will I, you know, the things I do I only do by the will of the Father? Right, I know, and that's maybe a weird comparison here. But when we talk about this kind of like how, when we're talking about the spirit being its own active agent by which we can understand something about God, how is it that the spirit can do that and still be a part of this Trinitarian model?
1: Yeah. So, so the th- the 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 will of God is. Yeah. So, gen- I think generally. Probably traditional theology would 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 associate the will mm, with the divine nature, but at the same time there there's, there is a there is a a tendency or a um, instinct maybe um, in traditional Trinitarian theology to give the father a primacy right and not, not, in, not as not in his divine status right all three persons are equally divine. Right. But primacy in terms of um, order of activity. So the father, for example, sends the son in, right. in the gospel of John, right? The son is not sending the father. And, and, the, and the, 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 so that's an economic activity. The father sends the son into the world to, um, you know, go do so forth. Um, right. And then they would say, well, that, and that reflects in, in the, the theology of processions, which deals with the, or the imminent relations, the, the son is eternally from the father, begotten father is the traditional term, and so then that eternal relation then is reflected in the economic relation, and so in the mutual love model, where you have the, so they have the father uh, begetting the son, and the father and the son love each other, so the, the, the Holy Spirit is third in order, in that way of thinking then it's it makes sense for them the spirit to do the bidding of the father and son right because the right. spirit is essentially the third in order and so the, the father can send the son the son can send the spirit or the father and son can send the spirit but the spirit does not send son or father um I, again uh, and i don't necessarily reject the order of processions um i don't think that um there's anything in, maybe intrinsically wrong with that um i don't know if you have to adopt it it's it's but right. um but yeah it does if you do then then this kind of this kind of language where um the thought, the, the spirit is essentially fulfilling uh, the will of some of another divine person makes sense right I guess that what I would prefer to say is that they are acting in concert, right? Mm-hmm. That the will of, will of one, because they share the divine nature, they, it's one. We're talking about one God, that their will is is the same, although they are doing different things, right? So, for example, in redemption, um, God, speaking generally, wants to draw us out of our life of debauchery and brokenness and. And 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 bring us into a transformed life that is fundamentally in fellowship and union with with him, with God. And so they each are doing different things in that process, right? right. And and uh, just as they were in the person of Christ, um, the Son is the one incarnate, but the Spirit is the one incarnating Him, you know. And so there's a and drawing Him into fellowship in a certain way with the um, with the Father. So, but the will, the 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 goal, what they're trying to do, is essentially the same.
0: Yeah. So, how, if you can kind of recap how your model pushes back against this kind of love model, right, of Augustine, and, and then take that one step further. I'm, I'm sure you've heard pushback from your own model. Why have you had pushback? Like, what 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 would be so different within your model that people would feel uncomfortable. Theologians would want, want to argue uh, back towards an Augustinian love model.
1: Yeah. Um, so on the first part, um, I think the, the the primary difference is 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 saying that the Spirit is not simply this bond of love. That um, what I what I set forth in in the um, I think I describe him as um, again liminal constitutional eschatological agency of the of the holy spirit if you um and so that that's kind of indicates his personal identity um so yeah i think that 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 is better At better it one it's better because it captures the agency of the spirit in in scripture right the the activity of the spirit so i think yeah. a, a theology that better reflects that is superior to one that doesn't right um now pushback that's
0: a you know it's been 10 years i think since i wrote that i know this is so many of my questions are always about things that i just want to know right i'm like yeah i'm trying to remember what people have complained about well hmm, what did they complained about yeah and maybe there's not a good example especially 10 years later but maybe a better question then is how has that model changed for you the way in which you Engage theologically with other things, such as atonement or such as soteriology. How has that model shifted the way that you think about other theological issues?
1: Well, yes, quite substantially. Um, and and I, I should say this: my my thinking that started with Edwards. So, so in a sense, so like I I I critique the mutual love model, which Edwards represents, but but. Edwards was the one who and, and Father Coffee at Marquette, who first turned me on to thinking seriously about, and also I would say um, uh, uh, Lyle Dabney, thinking seriously about the Holy Spirit. Um, and, and so even though in a sense I move, move away from their um, the mutual love model, the, the um, centrality of pneumatology in my thinking has was, was sparked by them. And is continued on from them. So in that sense, what I'm doing still stands yeah. in continuity with, with them, even though I in in material what matters have changed. So so okay, so the, the how, how that, that 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 has changed my thinking. Um so in Pentecostal circles, the Holy Spirit is what I call soteriological option, which is right. ironic because right. we we're all about the Holy Spirit, right? <laughs> Spirit baptism, it's our sine qua on, it's our big doctrine, you know, right. and yet you don't even need it to be saved. Right. So we've reduced the Holy Spirit to this thing that's optional, right? You don't even need it. And so here we essentially intensify theologically with what the Protestants did more broadly, in, in their basic way of understanding the relationship between Christ and the spirit in, in the doctrine of redemption. And what do I mean by that? Well, in, in, in Protestant theology, Christ achieves redemption, the Holy Spirit applies it. And, and, and um, you know, it's Holy Spirit's like Santa Claus. He you has know, a goodie bag. Uh, of, oh, you need a little re- regeneration. Here's that you need, <laughs> you need a little uh, forgiveness, yeah. whatever it is that you need the Holy Spirit Spirit baptism. If you're Pentecostal, you get that. That's the big gift, right? That's the one we're all been waiting for it Chris, on Christmas morning. Um, but then, but really, wh- everything happens on the cross, right? Everything that matters for your salvation happens on the cross because. Your sanctification, which is called the subjective work of redemption, which is the primary work of the Holy Spirit, doesn't uh, contribute anything to your ultimate salvation. You say, Studebaker, are you just off your rocker? Everybody believes in sanctification. (laughs) Of course they do. Anybody who's read the Bible for a few minutes believes in sanctification. The point is, are you going to—the classic evangelical question— if you, when you stand before God, he's going to ask you, why should I let you into my heaven? You're going to point to your sanctification.
0: Hmm.
1: You're going to point, you're going to point to your spirit. Ba- well, look, I got spirit baptized. Right. Of right not. No, right. I, I'm i sanctified. Look at me. <laughs> oh no, no. Cause that's, that, that's a direct uh, exit door to hell. Right. No, because that's not sufficient. Right. You, right. you have to have the perfect, absolute uh, righteousness of Jesus Christ. And so, um, I started thinking, like, I'm like, okay, Edwards, Edwards, like, he says, no, that's that thinking is not right. The basic logic there, because it reduces the work right. of the Holy Spirit. It right. makes the Holy Spirit's work secondary. And then I started thinking, oh, well, what is Pentecostals? We're, we're all about the Holy Spirit. And yet our theology makes the Holy Spirit not only a, it makes the primary work of the Holy Spirit not only the work of sanctification, but this this one dimension of sanctification. Yeah. Right. right, a subset of right. the subjective work. So we've even intensified this subordination of the Spirit even more than you know your average Protestant out there. At least they say the Holy Spirit is you know the the primary work of the Holy Spirit is sanctification. We narrow it down to this one thing called Spirit baptism. Right. I was like, this this can't be true. Not only because I don't like it, right? <laughs> it's a It's in the Bible. It doesn't, God doesn't care what you like. Well, no, if you actually look at the Bible, look, look at the four Gospels. What does John the Baptist do when he he he's inaugurating or announcing Jesus's ministry? He says, "I baptize in water; he will forgive you of your sins and let you go." No, that's not what he says. He says, right. I ba- "He will baptize in the Holy Spirit," and right. he said all four gospels have him doing that. Now, yeah. if it was only one, we could say, "Okay, it's maybe it's not that central." But this is like it's a, it's an important pivotal moment in the narrative of jesus right he's going from being a basically a private person to his public ministry and the john the baptist in all four gospels frames this as i baptize in water he will baptize you with the holy spirit yeah jesus self-identifies as the spirit anointed messiah in in luke I, I, he goes into the synagogue reads from the scroll of isaiah the spirit of the lord is on me to do yada 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 matthew um he says if i cast out demons by by the spirit of god then the kingdom of god has come among come among you in luke and matthew how is the the right. the, the um the the, injo- the um the movement of um the word becoming flesh described it's the work of the holy spirit right right um and then you know pentecostals we know all about this the book of acts
0: <laughs> what <laughs> happens that one. like the
1: holy spirit comes right it fulfills right. the promise so are you telling me that john the baptist decides to announce and frame the ministry of jesus with something that was really not that important oh if you get around to having spirit baptism go for right. it but if you don't no big deal right and then and then we have the main thing that happens when jesus leaves the outpouring of the spirit of Pentecost that is describing an event that you don't even need for salvation. That makes no sense at all. Right. No sense at all. When you think of scripture as a narrative, right now, if we had half a dozen um, books like acts that describe the life and times of the early church, and one of them focused on spirit baptism and the outpouring and then the other five did something else. You say, oh, okay, maybe it isn't, right. it isn't right. that important But where you have a continuity of the gospels giving centrality to uh, framing Jesus's life and ministry and the gift that he's going to give in terms of the spirit and then acts doing so. And also the tying in with old Testament prophecies of pouring out of the spirit and the outpouring yeah. of the Spirit, eschatological renewal, then that, that kind of like, no, this way of thinking just cannot be right. And so then with atonement, you know, atonement generally is Christological, Christocentric, and, and so I started thinking from this new mythological perspective, um, that needs to be, um, augmented by like, if, if, the gift of Pentecost is the primary work of redemption, then focusing only on the cross and on penal judgment can't be the whole story.
0: Yeah. Well, I, and I love that because that you actually say in your, your book, the spirit of atonement, you actually say that something like penal substitutionary atonement just doesn't work for pentecostals because of the way in which pentecostals envision the spirit and yet we've kind of accepted this as just kind of the atonement right i mean it's the, it's probably the largest most widely accepted atonement in evangelical circles although i think that is diminishing thankfully but yeah. you kind of give you kind of play it out in that irony right that we've accepted something like that as pentecostals even though it really doesn't work when we think about the, the person work of the spirit. Explain that a little bit. Cause I think that was kind of like a big.
1: Yeah. So the Pentecostal doctrine of spirit baptism is a um, is borrowed. Right? Pentecostals did not create the doctrine. The prior Wesleyans and um, holiness people did in the 19th century. And so there is a sense in which they're pulling off a doctrine off the shelf. Well, that doctrine of spirit baptism is a second work of grace. Post-conversion is part of a larger understanding of, of redemption again, again, which is begins with Christ as the one who achieves or earns right. redemption from the cross. And then the Holy spirit being the one who applies the benefits of redemption. Um, and so, Like we're we're already off to a bad start, right? We have this (laughs) this this work of the Holy Spirit, and rather than come to terms theological terms with it on its own, we simply borrow some categories that are on the shelf and filter it through those things, and so we end up with this theology that intrinsically subordinate subordinates. Uh, pneumatology to Christology, which then I think subverts our theological explication of the Pentecostal experience. Because the Pentecostal experience shows us that I think it's more in tune with the with the New Testament, where the spirit is central, right? The, the spirit yeah. is central to the Christian experience. The, the sphere of baptism is not a secondary, ancillary, sort of optional thing, right? when it, My own experience would corroborate, although it, obviously this is anecdotal, Um Um, Yeah, when I became a Christian, it was a life-changing, transforming, uh, sort of born-again, renewal in God's, you know, spirit sort of thing. Forgiveness was important. Christ was a part of it. Um, The spirit is forming us in the image of Christ. But it was much more than a penal experience, right? Okay, my sins are forgiven. God's not mad at me anymore. I can go to heaven. And in the meantime, I'll... I'll busy myself with some religious, religious calisthenics, church, right. reading my Bible, that sort of a thing. Right. It's, it's a more, like the experience itself was transformational. It was relational. It was empowering um, and much more forgiveness was part of it. Right. Cause there, I had a lot of guilt from my, my life of debauchery, but that was just one thing in a large constellation of sort of transformational grace. Right. I, I would say that my going to college, meeting my wife, my ke- all of that's doing this right now, yeah. is a part of the horizon of the spirit, the horizon of grace and life transformation that are, and that is part. That is what atonement is. Right. Right. Atonement yeah. is not simply this, um, you know, Father in Heaven uh, having His wrath assuage. Okay, God's not mad at us anymore. Right. Right. <laughs> Yeah. Right. No, no, God, Christ came into the world to transform our lives into his image. That's what atonement is.
0: Yeah. And, and, and the I lo- spirit is central to that. And, and I love that because it, hey, again, it pushes back against this kind of idea of an angry God being appeased, uh, which, you know, is a question for Edwards with sinners with an angry yeah, God and sure. the like, right? Yeah. Uh, which we just had to have a whole other podcast on Edwards Green and I, Chris and I, we, we talked about the whole, you know, slavery issue with Edwards and a lot of other things. But so mm-hmm. maybe that would be a great, fascinating conversation with you. But what's what's interesting is that kind of this idea that the spirit is not just an, an applier, but central to the achievement of atonement. Through Christ, being hmm. in Christ, right, being yeah. being. Christ both the I, I mean to steal from Machia which is going you know, to go there for a guy named Frank Machia right Jesus is the spirit baptizer right he is the one baptizing the spirit and therefore baptizing and so I, I would almost want to hear kind of how you think differently than than Frank but before we get to that you know there's a historic debate for Pentecostals with you know the kind of the stalwart of one of the stalwarts of new perspective studies James Dunn in mm-hmm in this idea of spirit baptism where Dunn is very keen to say that spirit baptism is the thing, right? Like that's the thing when we talk about salvation in this, in a similar way, that's why I'm kind of bringing it up in a similar way, uh, at least on the surface that when you are, when you are saved, Paul new Testament kind of uses this phrase of spirit baptism as the phrase of being saved like as a, as akin to that. And of course, Pentecostals don't like that because we want subsequence. I say we want, I don't, but you know, some people do yeah. a subsequent yeah. act, something that happens afterwards you get saved. And then maybe you've got holiness and sanctification and then spirit baptism, or maybe kind of those two things coincide, you know, ba- Pentecostals that are kind of, you know, split on that. But how is what you're saying maybe different from, and I don't know if you're that familiar with Dunn's work, but how would it be different than Dunn's kind of conversation there to say that, well, salvation just is the idea of spirit baptism. That that's what, when Paul says you're baptized in the spirit, when Acts talks about this way, it is the term to mean you're saved.
1: Yeah. I, I think that in, in a certain way that I would be, I'm in agreement with, with Dunn, although I, I've, it's been a while since I've read him. And, and my approach to the issue was not unbiblical or without consideration of scripture <laughs> but but <laughs> but but not as um not dealing not dealing with the sort of classic ins and outs of reading call on justification right. by faith which i think done would not not to not to critique him for it but to see a dip there is a different like i'm bringing right. at a theological historical theological in in my reading of scripture, approach to scripture is is look, dealing with different passages and themes than, than what Dunn might, but I also think if I remember, right, because I do cite, I do reference Dunn, and I do remember reading him and interacting with him, and, um, oh, probably the Atonement book, um, and um, I think he's also very Christocentric in certain, mm-hmm. certain, and so I think probably what um, I would do in terms of understanding the role of the Spirit in the life of Christ might be a little different uh, than what he he does, or maybe he just doesn't talk about it because he's focusing on Romans or something. Right. Um, so that 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 that's a I think a difference. I think a difference just in terms of what the passages and the approach. Um, but on seeing the Spirit as the fundamental gift of redemption, I, I would I think we're probably in agreement.
0: Hmm. Which is, which is interesting, and I won't ask you to go into Frank, but one day maybe I'll start to kind of process, because I think both of you are trying to do something there too. But what what I would ask then, and, and again, you bring this up in, in your text, and everyone's going to be like, Aaron never really asks questions directly out of books, and it's mainly just because I've been reading your books uh, as of late in the past couple months, but... You know, you you make the claim, and I think this is the point to bring it up, that Christ is still in invaluable, like we have to have Christ, mm-hmm. but it's sometimes hard to actually kind of argue that when we come from a pneumological perspective of salvation is the spirit, is receiving the spirit. You know, these claims that we, sometimes it almost feels like when we don't highlight Christocentrism and we don't make that the key thing. Then we just why do we even need Christ altogether? What would you say to that? Because I think some people might hear, well, do we really need Jesus? What did Jesus do then if he's not appeasing God? If he's not, you know, dying yeah. to Yeah.
1: So the same question could be said, well, if all, if all we need is Christ, why do we need the spirit? Right. Um, so I think I think part of the the concern, the 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 question is is that we are so conditioned by Christocentrism that anything that is not that is immediately suspect. Hmm. and so so that's one thing. And the other thing is that I'm not suggesting a pneumocentrism. I'm not suggesting that we replace Christocentrism with a pneumocentric theology. What I want to see is a synergy of Christology and pneumatology of Christ and the spirit. A theology theology redemption that real that recognizes the, the, the role of both and the synergy in their in their work. So in in when we receive the spirit, what, what is it that, that the spirit is doing in, in redemption? Well, the spirit is doing the same thing in principle that the spirit did in the life of Christ, right? The spirit brings the eternal son of God into union with the humanity humanity of Jesus Christ in Matthew and Luke chapter one. And through that union, and the Spirit remains a part of Jesus' life. It's not like the Spirit like zapped the right. <laughs> the incarnation and then left and comes back episodically right. to Jesus with some power. Um, but his oh, the, his entire life is an outworking of this pneumatic uh, Holy Spirit catalyzed union of the Son and the humanity. And, and I think that's why Jesus uh, says when he goes into the synagogue and for the spirit of the Lord is on me. The spirit is anointing me to preach good news. He casts out demons by the power of the spirit. And so when the spirit comes to us, the spirit of Pentecost, the spirit is coming to us to do this, basically the same thing that he did in Christ. Again, always remembering that Christ was the incarnation of the son of God and we are not like he's coming. But he's coming to reproduce in us a union, a fellowship between our life and, and the father and Christ through the spirit, and also to recreate in us that Christological life that was realized in, in Jesus. Um, I had another thing I wanted to say on that. Maybe it'll come back.
0: <laughs> I will, you know, uh, been, been asking this question a lot, especially as some of my more recent guests have been pastoral at some point or still are pastors or still are and kind of engaged in ministry. But, you know, again, to, to make this quote unquote every day, right? Like a really high lofty conversation on what's the role of the spirit versus the role of Christ and in relation to the Trinity and how does this all work for you? If you had to kind of say, here's how it shaped you, like this engagement, this reading, this thought process of the spirit How has it shifted or shaped you theologically, but also spiritually as a kind of example for what this can do in others who might begin to engage in thinking this way about God?
1: Yeah, I think one of the things that it does is it helps us see the entirety of our life as, and I used this term before, the horizon of grace or the horizon of the Spirit um, give you an illustration of what I mean. When I when I taught at the school in um in Georgia, one of my colleagues said to me, He said, You know, we're so we're so blessed. He's speaking, the two of us were speaking, is mm-hmm, everything mm-hmm. we do is for the kingdom. Because we were teaching in, you know, school of Christian ministries. I was theology, he taught New Testament. And he was everything we do is for the kingdom. You know, we every day we're at work, we're teaching this stuff, you know, we go to church on Sunday, we're serving our churches, you know. Maybe, maybe Saturday, nothing we do for the kingdom or, you know, and then he goes, and he actually said this. I see, I feel sorry for people like your wife. Oh, my my wife, my wife at the time was, you know, she worked in the belly of, well, for the, in the, yeah, in the belly of the beast in corporate banking. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And uh, he's like, you know, people, and he didn't mean it in a negative way. He, it wasn't like, Oh, your wife, what a terrible, right. Right. I I feel sorry for people. You know, they, they, they have secular jobs. They, they they maybe go to church on wednesday night and, and sunday and you know occasionally maybe they go on a missions trip and but his point is this bifurcation right of spirit sacred and, and secular right mm, there's this yeah there's this special spiritual stuff that we do um for those of us in theological education ministry formation why everything we do is for the kingdom of god hallelujah you know we get up we live, <laughs> right. breathe this stuff we teach you know you take saturday off to go fishing you know but then back to serving the kingdom on Sunday. Um, and then, you know, everybody else, everybody else out there, 98% of their life is spent, you know, dealing with stuff that has no connection to the kingdom. Yeah. It's um, working and going to the grocery store and use sports and, and all that kind of thing. And then, you know, occasionally they can do a little bit for, you know, king and country on Sunday and maybe a <laughs> missions trip in the summer. Yeah. And yeah. and so I this thinking about, the Holy spirit as sort of the catalytic agent of the incarnation and in that the incarnate life as, um, Christ. Um, if you, um, sort of demonstrate, not demonstration, that's the right word, wrong word. I don't want to use achievement because I don't want people to think I'm falling back into the right kind right. of fire paradigms, but the historical, um, um, the other see, accomplishment of redemption, realization of the incarnate life, sort of the, um, designed for, uh, humanity from the, from the, from the creation stories, like Jesus realized its full fullness, right? right? And then he offers us participation in that fullness through the spirit. Um, so it made me think, well, it's salvation is not this thing that is just about certain sort of spiritual aspects of life, but so like everything in our life is part of our, uh, uh, um, experience of God's spirit, whether we're, we're dealing with church or, or our professional work, or right. whatever it is. So I think that that's one of the things, and so I think that changes the way you would preach, right? And 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 talk to people about about their. Uh, well, one, you wouldn't use secular job. Like, right. what is secular? Like in a world right. that God has created. And created for us to live embodied lives. What's where's the secular world that that's, that, that people talk yeah, about? Yeah, it's the breaking um, down but, of that
0: secular sacred divide that we've kind of created. Yeah, right?
1: yeah. Now there's sinful things, Um right. But there's there's not really a secular space. Um, right. Our our culture says there is because they they want to keep Christians from being maybe involved with certain of the
0: world, right? Yeah.
1: <laughs> they don't want your input, so you keep out of your. This is secular. <laughs> Um, but we sort of buy into it too, right? And, um, so I think that that's a big difference. And yeah. I think that has a lot of ramifications for the way you think about um, uh, Christian activity. Uh, w- w- one example, um, when, w- from, again, from the church in Georgia, we, um, there was a group of us that started having these Sunday evening hot um, luck Texas, some of us would play Texas Hold'em, other kids, oh, the kids would doing some other things. That's thing. not
0: a good Pentecostal holiness thing to do. No, I was, I was gonna <laughs> tell
1: anybody, edit that part of the podcast out, Aaron. Um, I, I need to retain plausible, but I didn't say that <laughs> jumped in there real quick. Allegedly, um, allegedly played
0: yeah. Texas Hold'em,
1: allegedly. Yeah. Um, so but this well intended lady. She, she had come to a couple and she said, um, you know, we were getting ready to eat or something. And it was, you know, there were probably 20 people in this, this house. She said, um, you know, th- this is a, a a church activity, you know, this is a group from the church and, you know, I, this is all good. And I know everybody's having to get to choose, but I really think that we need to have, you know, a Bible study or or a prayer yeah. meeting that, that yeah. needs to be a part of it. I mean, why would, why would a person think that? Why would right. a person think you need to to sort of sanitize a fellowship experience with a prayer and a Bible study? Right. Well, it's because the fellowship experience is seen as lesser. Right. right? It's not spiritual. But when uh, I think when you step out, set aside those categories, and you Christians coming together and enjoying relationship, food and fellowship, that's spiritual. Yeah. It's no less yeah. spiritual than. A, a prayer. I'm not saying we shouldn't have prayer and Bibles, Bibles reading, but we don't have to have it every time that a couple of Christians right. get together, right? The, right? the fellowship is just as important and it's part of a a full life, right?
0: Yeah. It's funny you say that because I, I had this experience, I guess, not too long ago. My wife and I were walking around the the park right across the street from our house and not saying anything, not really talking, just getting outside. I think it was, you know, winter in Ohio, right? So it was cold. And uh, I just had that moment where I was like, this is a very spiritual moment, right? Like not because I was praying and not because, you know, we were having some discussion about scripture or anything, but just because it was the enjoyment of God's creation in a time and a space together, right? I think for so many people, there is that kind of, almost guilt from enjoying mm. creation even though that is part of the the thing part of part of what it is it is a spiritual act when we enjoy what god's created for us to enjoy as long as we're doing it in holy ways right not destroying the thing that we're supposed to enjoy
1: yeah well and and that's the thing that god if you scripture from creation to eschaton god create god did not create a church with spiritual beings that you know sort of fly around and sing you know (laughs) time for eternity but he created human beings on earth embodied and then in the old testament redemption stories usually deal with embodied sorts of redemption right you'll rebuild your city i'm going to bring you back to your land um the your wine vats will be full you know you'll have your homes will be secure and safe these are very embodied things right it's not this go fly off to heaven when you die sort of yeah. And, and the book of Revelation, a new heaven, a new and a new Jerusalem, a city, a city is the, sim, the symbol of our most sophisticated form of human cultural activity <laughs> right. and interaction, right? Human creativity, like that that is redeemed, right? right? And so it's this idea Oh, we're gonna be in heaven for a million years, just having a worship. There's no church in the New Jerusalem,
0: <laughs> right? It doesn't
1: exist. You know, oh well, uh, Jesus is there, and He's the church. Well, okay, yeah. I'm not saying there's not worship, but right. clearly, this vision of an eternal worship service is not in the is not in the eschatological vision in Revelation. Yeah. To my own, on my own own opinion, because of lack of sanctification, thank God. <laughs> could you imagine sitting around for a million years just singing? I would no, have to get I, point
0: I, you have I mean I have been I've been thinking that way for a long time, but just I've never talked to anyone about that. Uh but you have like relieved so much of my like childhood angst of being told as a child in Pentecostal churches like, Oh, we're just we're gonna be in heaven and just to be it was gonna be a worship service all day and I as a kid I was like, Oh my gosh, that sounds boring. <laughs> like I was like, I don't want that. I don't want to do that forever please let's do something else. So, uh, yeah, you know, it's really interesting. I think, I, I think as we kind of like sum, sum up our time together, it's really interesting the venues of possibility and thinking when engagement with the spirit is more than just the idea of empowerment for mm. the charismatic or, you know, sanctification or whatever it is as something subsequent to an embodied life within the world. Mm -hmm. Uh, But when we start to actually think about how the spirit engages with all of life from the very moment of life, like it, it changes so much the way of what it personally to me, what it means to be a follower of Christ, what it means to be made in the image of God, what it means to be engaged within the world. That's just so much more fulfilling. But again, that's anecdotal. That's my own personal experience. It's just more fulfilling when yeah. that becomes the focus of our Christ life and not just have I done X, Y, and Z? Have I accomplished, like, you know, that sacred cycle? Have I accomplished these things today? Have I read enough? Have I prayed enough? Have I, you know, yeah. which just becomes performative, right? Like it's a performative. Yeah, act.
1: checkbox Christianity right. often, right? Check off my little Steve. time to.
0: Super wonderful time! Uh, I'm so glad we got to do this. Before I let you go, is there any you know any spaces, new books, newer books, anything that any way people can keep up with what you're doing and the work that you're doing? Um, I just would mention
1: uh, one one that we didn't talk about. It's a few in between the Trinity book and the Atoma book. That was a uh, Pentecostal um, political theology. Um, The the longer title is for American Renewal, that was prior to the presidency of Donald Trump <laughs> was, um, although I still think America needs renewal, <laughs> but uh, yeah. it has a bit of a jingoistic sound if read during the Trumpian era. Yeah, and it, it was um, sort of forced on me by the ed- not the not the series editor, but the 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 book publisher. They wanted this title that was explanatory, so I <laughs> funky. I wanted just to go with Pentecostal political theology. Yeah, and, but I'm currently working on a book with my colleague Lee Beach. On the on the um, how what were called emergent type churches, kind of alternative churches, creative churches in the early 2000 ish, basically kind of up through about 2010 ish, um, missional type churches, how those have impacted wider evangelical huh. movement and how they're going to probably um continue to influence you know for example um churches being more open to lgbtq that sort of thing right that Interesting. Ten years ago that would have been unthinkable now it's you having you know more, more becoming more common for churches to be inclusive and, and open to that right and so um yeah that's that's just an example that's not yeah. the focus but, but to look at how these this kind of stuff the movement sort of is no longer with us in a sense right right as right. an official, but it's influences with us. Right.
0: Yep. Yeah. Hey, well, when you're done with that, we should have both you and your colleague and we'll, we'll do another one. Cause I'd be fascinated to kind of see what those church trends are, uh, that you've kind of uncovered. So yeah. Steve, again, thank you so much for this. It's been my pleasure to have you and hopefully we get to do it again, especially when that book is out soon. Yeah. Yep. Thank you, Aaron.